0: Hello, and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. I hope everyone enjoyed the October episodes. We are back to our normal intro song now. I'm going to miss the spooky Halloween songs and sound effects, but hey, they will be back next year. For this week's episode, I have a lot to cover. And it will be a two-parter because of the sheer amount of vital information in this case. But first, I want to start this episode off with an old saying. To hate someone is like drinking poison and hoping they die. Meaning, hate is toxic. And by holding on to that feeling for someone, you are only hurting yourself. In this two-part episode, we are going to explore both hate and poison. So let's just dive headfirst into this case. 1988, Alturas, Florida. Pi and Peggy Carr receive a letter in the mail. This letter was not a warm welcome to the neighborhood saying, Hey, I hope you and your family are happy in our community and here's some fresh oranges from our orange grove. No, no. This letter reads, You and all your so-called family have two weeks to move out of Florida or else you will die. This is no joke. That's the letter they got in the mail. They got that letter. Could you imagine getting that letter in your mailbox? I would be terrified. This letter wasn't signed or handwritten. It was typed on a piece of yellow paper and some sources say it was a post-it note, which I'm just imagining somebody using a typewriter and typing on a post-it note that letter. It's a very weird, it's a very weird mental imagery. Uh, it was addressed to the father in the family, Pi, and it had the family's address on it. Pi's name was misspelled P-I-E. His spelling is P-Y-E, short for, and I may get this wrong because I've never heard this name before, Parierlens, which, again, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correct, which is probably why he goes by Pi. The family knew it wasn't someone who knew them well enough to know how to spell his name, so they could kind of conclude that right away. Uh, of course, there was no return address on it. I mean, that would have been silly of the sender to do that. Uh, so it was mo- most likely it wasn't mailed, but hand-delivered to their home, which just adds that extra layer of creepiness. But who wanted them gone so badly and why? Pie and Peggy had married about seven months earlier, and they blended their families together. Pie entered into the marriage with his 16-year-old son, Travis – And his 18-year-old daughter, Tammy, kids from his previous marriage, but new to the home, so they had all lived in the home previously, Pi got divorced, uh, and then he met and married Peggy. So new to the home was his wife, Peggy, her 17-year-old son, Dwayne. Her daughter, Sissy, who I didn't get an exact age for, but if I were to guess, I would say early 20s. And Sissy's two-year-old daughter, who also lived at the home with them. Peggy also had another son named Alan, but he didn't live with them as he was in Tennessee, living on a Navy base. When Pi and Peggy received this letter, they talked about it with some of their kids, and everyone just kind of laughed it away, and they weren't really threatened by it. They didn't see this as a real threat. They didn't know what it was all about, and they didn't have any enemies of that caliber, if any at all. In an interview, Peggy's son, Duane, says the family wasn't perfect like the Brady Bunch, uh, and they did have some troubles at home with arguing and fighting. I mean, you have all these teenagers living together. There's bound to be some feathers ruffled, but the teens weren't the only ones with a turbulent relationship. Six months into Peggy and Pi's marriage, Pie would often call home telling Peggy he would have to work late at the mine he worked at, and Peggy began to get suspicious. One night, Pai called her and told her he couldn't make it to the dinner that they had planned with his sister, Carolyn, because, oh no, he suddenly had to work late again. Peggy thought, "Mm, this is getting weird, and I'm going to drive to his work, and I'm going to see what he's doing. When Peggy and her daughter, Sissy, drove over to Pi's work, they noticed everything was quiet at the mines. There was no other workers there. The parking lot didn't have workers' cars in it, but it did have Pi's car in the parking lot. And beside his car was the car of his ex-girlfriend. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, okay, we all know what that means. Peggy knew too. Peggy knew what was happening. She knew Pi was having an affair and it hurt her greatly. So much that she took her kids and moved into a cheap motel down the road from their home that night. She didn't bust into Pi's office or try to find him on the mining site and be like, gotcha, motherfucker. Now she was like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to pack all my shit. I'm going to pack up my kids and I'm going to move down the road to this motel and let him come beg for me back and that's exactly what she did pie came home and he found a note that peggy had left him reading that she loved him deeply but couldn't stay in a relationship where she wasn't loved back Pie somehow won Peggy back. I don't know how he did it. It didn't really I didn't really get details on what he said or whatever, but he did win Peggy back and everybody moved back into the home a few days later. That same weekend Peggy moved back in, Pie left for a hunting trip. This is kind of weird to me because he just won his wife back who he was so close to losing. He's having this affair, he wins her back, She moves back in and then he says, hey, actually, I had a a pre-hunting trip planned and I'm still gonna go on that, and he did. So he up and goes on this trip. This is going to look very suspicious later on. If you're like me, then you're probably thinking, hmm, I think we might have a suspect for who the note writer is. Could it possibly be the woman Pi is having an affair with? Mm, That's what I first thought. Sunday morning of that weekend, which was October 23rd, 1988, Peggy went to work at the diner she waitressed at. Bright and early, she gets up, she goes to work, would have been a nice fresh Florida morning, she would have been driving through Orange Groves, zesty, zesty zest would have been in the air, that delicious smell of oranges. I love the smell of oranges. So she drives to work and she gets there early because every morning she likes to sit with her favorite customer, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes before her shift started. It was like her morning ritual, which I love. That just sounds so peaceful. She felt very unwell and started to think she was having a heart attack. And she told her friend this. And having been a medic in the army, he assessed her skin tone, Uh, her breathing, her heart rate, and told her she wasn't having a heart attack. And he was right. But still, Peggy had pains in her chest, and she was just feeling really terrible. Her legs were aching, and her hands were numb. Her friend told her, look, Peggy, your nail beds are pink, which means you are not having a heart attack. Which, that's something I had never heard before, but it makes sense, because... If I were to guess, I would say it has something to do with the circulation of your blood in your body. If your nail beds go like a white color maybe, I don't know. I'm not sure what color they would go if you're having a heart attack, but definitely not pink, and her nail beds were pink. Peggy still started work at 7 a.m. and worked until lunch, until her daughter Sissy came in, uh, because Sissy also worked there, and she told her mother to go home and get into bed after Peggy had told her how bad she was feeling. Peggy told Sissy about her pain and her hands feeling numb, her feet were throbbing and she felt nauseous. So Sissy just told her, get your ass home, get into bed and just go feel better. This makes me really sad that Peggy was so concerned and worried she was having a heart attack and she was in pain, but knowing how much seeking medical help would have cost, she didn't go to the hospital. She had no spare money. She had no money to spare for these hospital visits. So Peggy went home and she got into bed to try and sleep off her pain, but it just kept getting worse. Pie got home later that night from his trip and saw Peggy was in rough shape and called his sister Carolyn, who was a nurse, and she came over to check on Peggy's blood pressure, breathing, and vitals, but she seemed all good. There was no signs of a heart attack, she didn't know what was happening to Peggy, and basically they just let Peggy try to sleep this off. Then Sissy came home later that night to check on her mother and saw how sick she was. Peggy told Sissy she was in a lot of pain and just wanted the pain to go away. Peggy seemed confused and couldn't even walk to the bathroom on her own. Her eyes would involuntarily close and she couldn't keep them open. Her hands and feet were burning and she felt so nauseous. Sissy asked Pie. Are you going to take her to the doctor? Are you going to take my mother, your wife, to the doctor? He said, no, it's probably just the flu. And he just kind of brushed it off. But a few hours later, he checked on Peggy and Peggy was looking really, really bad. So Pi eventually took Peggy to the hospital. Whatever was making Peggy sick was escalating very, very quickly. Unfortunately, after three days in the hospital, the doctors couldn't figure out what was making Peggy so sick and be in so much pain and they actually didn't believe it was life-threatening. They told her it was all in her head which that pisses me off greatly. Peggy told them that she felt like she was on fire, any slight touch to her skin was agonizing and uh yeah they tried telling it was all in her head. It was like for some unknown reason her nerve endings were compromised causing any touch to feel like a thousand hot needles stabbing her. But Peggy was sent away being told it was psychosomatic, meaning all her excruciating pain was caused by herself being stressed out. So not only are they dismissing her pain and illness, but they are accusing her of causing it to herself from what? Not processing her emotions? Believe me, I know that unprocessed emotions can come out in very unhealthy ways and even Physically, but I have never heard of anybody being in this much excruciating pain, not being able to walk, not being able to keep their eyelids open, complaining of searing hot feet and numb hands. I've never heard of that, but again, I have no medical background So Peggy was starting to feel better, and I'm not sure if they had given her pain blockers, but if they had, perhaps that's why she was functioning more easily and and was feeling better. Maybe she wasn't in so much pain. Uh, That night, Carolyn... Pie's sister treated the family to fried chicken. After all, Peggy, she was too sick to cook. The fried chicken was served with Coca-Cola the family had in the kitchen in sealed glass bottles. Carolyn wanted Peggy to keep up her fluids, so she did so by serving Peggy this Coca-Cola and the rest of the family, most of the family drank this Coca-Cola as well. The next day, Peggy's illness took a terrible turn, and she couldn't move from her bed. Her eyes wouldn't stay open, and she was in so much pain and very nauseous, so the symptoms are just carrying on. They're not getting better, they're getting worse. That same day, Peggy's son Dwayne and stepson Travis started to feel the same thing as Peggy. Dwayne and Travis complained about throbbing, in their feet and terrible, and just feeling terrible. At first, they thought, oh, maybe they're hungover. I guess they had been drinking the night before. And they just kind of said, yeah, it must just be because we're hungover, but this feet thing is kind of weird. So they thought maybe it's just poor circulation. So one of them actually went for a run to try to get his circulation flowing again, but nothing really worked. Sissy checked in with her mother that morning and saw how bad she was doing again. And while at work that day, Sissy confided in a coworker that she suspected her stepfather, Pi, might be trying to kill her mother. This is something Sissy would think for a long time. That night around 7 p.m., Pi called an ambulance to come get Peggy because she was worsening and it was looking critical. At the hospital, doctors couldn't figure out what the hell was happening. I guess their last theory of it being psychosomatic wasn't looking so good now. Still, they found nothing in the blood test that was giving them any answers. But not all is lost because a good doctor finds himself assigned to see Peggy. 38-year-old Dr. Holster, who specializes in nervous system disorders, saw Peggy, and listened to her every word. She told him her feet felt like they were on fire. He examined her closely and thoroughly. He noted that she had ulcers in her mouth coated in a whitish plaque. Both sides of her face were weak. Her eyelids wouldn't stay open and she was extremely sensitive to touch. All this told him something none of the other doctors knew. By this time, Pai had told the doctor about their two sons, also showing the same symptoms, and this alarmed the doctor greatly, and Dr. Holster told Pai, bring those boys in, get those boys in now so I can look at them and inspect them as well. The doctor had an idea of what was happening and suspected a toxin or a poison had been leaked into the family's home somehow, possibly by the house being sprayed for pests or chemicals used in the orange groves near their home leaked into their drinking water. So first he had to find out what exactly they were dealing with and ordered tests on Peggy's blood to see if anything like arsenic, lead, or mercury showed up. But he also ordered a very rare test that isn't common practice because Peggy's symptoms matched with the signs of a very rare and hard-to-get poison that doesn't show up on basic lab tests and has been totally banned since 1972 in America. The reason Dr. Holster knew about this poison and the symptoms was because he read about it once in a medical textbook, and he remembered it. This is a good doctor. The special test was to see if the poison in Peggy's body was thallium. If you're a forensic files junkie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This poison is vicious. Thallium is a natural element and it is in the aluminum family. It was even used in the 1800s to treat things like ringworm, gout, syphilis, until they realized it was straight up poison for the human body. Small amounts a human body can handle, and by small amounts, I mean micro sizes. If a human body has a large dose, and by a large dose, I mean a gram or even half gram, depending on the person's size, it will kill them, but not instantly. It is a slow agonizing death in which there is no cure and no antidote for. When thallium enters the human body, It wears a disguise. It's like showing up at a Halloween party. You don't know who it is. It wears a disguise and it tells the body, hey, I'm cool. I'm not thallium. Actually, I'm potassium. Can't you tell by my costume? And because I'm potassium, you should carry me to every nerve and muscle in the body because I'm good for you. And then it wreaks havoc, causing burning pain, nausea, hair loss paralysis coma and then death once thallium is ingested it does take a few days or like a while something it's not instant it takes a while before you start showing symptoms so if you ingested thallium right now You might not see the effects until tomorrow or the day after that or even the day after that. It's not a fast-acting poison. It has to get into your body and then your body has to carry it to other parts of your body and then you start showing symptoms and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. And depending on how much you've had, you may not recover and there's nothing any doctor can do to help. Your body has to flush it out naturally, but even then, your your muscles and your nerves can have lifelong ill effects from it. In the 1960s, thallium was used in rat poison and pesticides, but once the environmental agency in America learned how dangerous it was, they fully banned it in 1972. In the 1980s, when Peggy was sick, thallium was still used, but only by factories who produce things like fireworks which I found terrifying. I've got two questions. Do we really need fireworks that bad or does fireworks really need thallium that bad? I'm not sure the role it plays in fireworks but it does. It was also used in nuclear medicine which I don't even know what that entails but that sounds very interesting. It was also still found in chemistry labs as well. Before they even got Peggy's test back another doctor noticed Peggy's hair was falling out in clumps on her pillow, and this confirmed it without having to even see the test because apparently, this is thallium's calling card. This symptom is incredibly specific to thallium. They do get Peggy's test back though, and the hair on the pillow told them the same thing the test results did, but in greater detail. Peggy had 20,000 times. 20,000 times, yep. 20,000 times the amount of thallium in her body that is naturally occurring, meaning she was given a big dose. Peggy had been poisoned with a vicious element that has no antidote or cure that is basically banned everywhere because it's so dangerous. But by who and how? Was the source still in the home waiting to be unknowingly consumed by more members of the family? had more members of the family consume this already was peggy targeted specifically was this an environmental issue was it in the water how many how many people how many people's water was this in and what was going to happen to peggy and the boys doctors had a lot of questions and they wasted no time calling police and environmental services Dwayne and Travis had been brought in for testing as well, and they had 20 times the naturally occurring amount in their body. So a lot less than Peggy. They had 20 times. Peggy had 20,000 times. The boys were in agony, just like Peggy. They said it felt like they were on fire. Even the bedsheets touching their skin was unbearable to them. They were in excruciating pain. Environmental services were combing through the home to try to find the source. They took water samples, thinking maybe pesticides leaked into the well water. They took samples of all the food and beverages in the home, and they were desperately searching for answers. They took and tested 400 samples from the home, and they were having no luck Peggy's condition got so bad that she started to lose all functions of her muscles, including breathing on her own. Her sister Shirley raced to be with her at that time, but Peggy could only communicate using sign language she and all her siblings knew from growing up with deaf parents in their home state of Alabama. Peggy signed to her sister, I hurt, which just breaks my heart. Her sister has to watch Peggy, in excruciating pain, on a breathing machine, can't communicate, and the only thing she can sign is I hurt. It's just so sad. The doctors broke the news to Pi that Peggy and the boys had been poisoned with thallium. And Pi, he couldn't think of anyone who hated them that much to do something so evil. Pai told Peggy that she had been poisoned and she only signed the word "why" over and over again. She had no idea why she had been targeted for this excruciatingly painful poisoning. She had no enemies. I mean, it, again, if I were to think of anybody at this point in the case, I would be thinking of the woman Pi was having an affair with. But Detective Ernie Mincy, he was going to get to the bottom of this and he was going to find answers for what was happening. Detective Mincy came to the hospital three days after Peggy was admitted to try and interview Peggy, but she was in dire straits and could no longer even sign to communicate. And a few days later, Peggy slipped into a coma after a state of confusion and not knowing where she was. Detective Mincy turned his attention to Pi, he had caught wind from Peggy's sister Shirley about the threatening letter that the family had received four months earlier and found it strange that Pie didn't mention this first thing, but Pie said he had forgotten all about it and he didn't see it as a real threat. The detective had to see this letter and he also wanted to see the family home and Pie showed him with no hesitation. To Detective Mincy, it seemed like Pie wanted all of the answers. He was just as invested in finding these answers. He was not hiding anything. He was like, here's the letter, here's my home, please find answers, what the hell is happening? But I'm sure Detective Mincy thought it was strange that Pi was gone the weekend Peggy and the boys were poisoned. Not to mention that affair Pi had had recently. Those are both huge red flags, but it didn't make sense that Pi would poison his own son. So he didn't narrow his vision to only Pi. He asked Pi if they had any troubles with the community or their neighbors. And aside from a few incidents of noise complaints, there wasn't any solid leads to go on, nothing that would cause or like scream motive for murder. Detective Mincy teamed up with a homicide detective named Paul Shale. This is how convinced they were this was no environmental accident and not like all those samples they took from the home hadn't been tested yet and here he is teaming up with a homicide detective because he's like this stinks of murder, attempted murder at this point. The two get busy questioning family members learning all the details of the affair that Pi had on Peggy, and how Peggy left Pi and lived in a motel for a while. And all of this, it was not looking good for Pi, especially since Peggy's ex-husband, Larry, who is Dwayne's father, told detectives he thinks Pi and Carolyn have something to do with it. Larry also tells them that when he went to visit his son in hospital, that he found Travis, Pi's son, because Dwayne and Travis were in the same hospital and Larry was visiting his son, but he also found Travis, Pi's son, screaming, Larry, help me. They are trying to kill me. And when Larry went into the room, he saw Carolyn and Pi were in their room with Travis. So why was Travis screaming that his aunt and his father were trying to kill him? That is going to look... Very suspicious. Then, of course, up came the topic of life insurance. Larry said there was life insurance on both boys and Peggy, taken out on them by none other than Pi. Peggy's policy was for $80,000, and both boys had $60,000 on each of them. But this was a lie. There was this life insurance it didn't exist. Detective Mincy discovered later that that didn't exist he couldn't find any evidence of that only a fifty thousand dollar policy on Pi put on Pi by himself so what's he gonna do kill himself and then collect that doesn't make any sense so there was a fifty thousand dollar policy on Pi that Pi had on himself and then there was a one thousand dollar policy on both of his kids so $1,000 sounds like it could have been a work thing even. It's not enough. It's, it's not enough for motive. Larry also tells detectives that he witnessed Pi and his ex-wife having a conversation. A very weird conversation. Pi's ex-wife brought up the fact that Pi works at a mine that has two chemist labs. Where can thallium be found? In chemist labs. And his ex-wife had asked him if they keep, quote, that shit, unquote, I'm assuming meaning thallium there, and Larry said that Pi told his ex-wife to shut her mouth. Again, if this is true, not looking so good for Pi. To make it all worse for Pi, Detective Shale had a packet of rat poison tested that was found where? On the mining site where Pi worked, and it contained, what? That's right, thallium because this rat poison was from Germany where it was still legal at this time to use thallium in rat poisoning. I'm not sure if it is now but at that time it was. It was in a small silver tin with German writing on it. Why this mine was buying their rat poison from Germany I have no idea who's ordering that but they had it. The test showed that yes thallium was in this rat poison but also no it was not the same type or kind of thallium that poisoned Peggy, Dwayne, and Travis. There was another test being conducted and this one made Detective Shale a little bit suspicious of another family member and potentially cleared Pi as a suspect. Tests were run on everyone in the family and everyone except for one person had significant amounts of thallium in their body, including Pi, sissy and sissy's two-year-old daughter but not pie's daughter tammy sissy and her two-year-old daughter did have toxic levels as well but somehow evaded sickness which i found interesting and i wonder why they showed no symptoms but tammy tammy had zero thallium in her system to detectives this looks like something that might happen if you're the poisoner. Everyone around you could have poison, but you, because you know where the poison's coming from, so I guess that's their line of thinking on that, which, I mean, it tracks. The environmental test cleared the drinking water and the orange grove fields surrounding the home, meaning this was for sure no accident, and it didn't seep into their home on accident. But the question remains, Where the hell did this thallium come from, and how did it make its way into everyone's system in the home except for Tammy's? Just before Detective Shale got pulled from the case, because, oh yeah, he gets pulled from the case because apparently, this is kind of juicy details, apparently his wife had gone on a date with Pi a long time ago before she was married and Detective Shale's supervisors or higher ups, they thought that he shouldn't be working on the case as it could make him bias in some way towards Pi. I mean, that also makes sense. So before all that happened, Detective Shale did a final sweep of the home for possible contaminants and discovered something that hadn't been tested yet. I mean, they, take, they took 400 samples from this house and he found something that hadn't been touched. He found empty glass Coca-Cola bottles the family had drank the night they ate that fried chicken. Those bottles had not been collected and tested. There was four empty bottles, one broken, with three still remaining full and unopened. Those empty bottles were sent off for testing and the full ones left in the home. December 2nd, the lab tested the Coca-Cola bottles and bingo, loaded with thallium. Even though the bottles were empty, they managed to get a sample of a sludge-like substance from the bottom of the bottles and it was toxic levels. The lab notified Detective Mincy at 4.45 p.m. and he was relieved they found one answer out of a long list still remaining. But now they knew what was contaminated and where the thallium was in the home and how it got into the system of the family. He recalls there were full bottles remaining in the car home belonging to the same eight-pack And he needed to get those bottles out of the home and have them tested and examined, which he did immediately that same evening. He also had some questions for Pi, like where the hell did these Coca-Cola bottles come from? Where did this eight pack of glass Coca-Cola bottles come from with the metal twist off? What are they? Metal? Aluminum? I'm not sure. You know what I'm talking about, like a beer bottle cap. They had those kind of caps on them, which you would think would be tamper-proof. Pai tells him he didn't know. He just assumed Peggy bought them. And he remembers seeing them in the home right around the time Peggy and the boys got sick. A pregnant crime scene technician came to process the scene and take photos of the Coca-Cola but she refused to touch them or bag them in fear the poison would seep into her skin and harm her unborn baby that's how toxic thallium is it can just by touching something that has thallium in it it can absorb through your skin and cause serious damage this discovery raised a horrifying question were these bottles poisoned at the coca-cola factory and how many bottles had been poisoned if so The remaining bottles were hand-delivered to an FBI lab in Washington by Detective Mincy himself. The bottles had no evidence of being tampered with and the fluid inside looked completely normal to any other Coca-Cola, but it was far from your average refreshing beverage. This is one Coca-Cola you don't wanna share with a friend. By this time, the Coca-Cola company heard about what was happening And whoever put thallium in the bottles should have known better than to mess with a billion dollar company like Coca-Cola because they wanted in on the investigation and they would stop at nothing to clear their name and find whoever is besmirching their trusted brand. This is also why it became a federal case because it was put in Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola executives trace the tainted Coke bottles back to the Tampa, Florida bottling plant where detectives then went to observe the process and concluded it was most likely impossible the thallium was mixed in during bottling. Therefore, they stopped looking at the plant. They concluded it was most likely the bottles were tampered with after production. But when and by who? Detective Mincy got the results back from the FBI about the full bottles of Coca-Cola And just as he suspected, they were rife with thallium. Each bottle contained enough thallium to kill an adult, depending on their weight. And Peggy was a tiny woman weighing 105 pounds, or if you do kgs, 47 kgs. It wasn't unlikely that if she drank only one bottle, it would be enough to kill her. So whoever did the poisoning, they did their math as well. The FBI also examined the caps and like the bottle caps of the Coca-Cola bottles and discovered under a strong microscope that the bottles had been opened and reclosed. Meaning someone meticulously pried open these caps, drugged the sodas, and then put the cap back on in such a way it was impossible to see With the human eye. The FBI had zoomed in on the bottles using a scanning electron microscope at times 100, and only then they saw the tampering evidence. That's how minuscule it was. That's how skilled whoever did this was. That's how patient they were. This is scary. If normal thallium is dumped into Coca-Cola, the cola has a reaction and will change color and it will be visible that something isn't right with the drink. But whoever did this knew how to stabilize thallium using another chemical so it doesn't affect the drink at all, not in color or taste or carbonation. Detectives and the FBI knew they were looking for someone smart and it wasn't going to be easy to catch them. Whoever they were looking for was a professional when it came to planning, poisoning, and chemicals. FBI profiling wasn't exactly in early days, but it wasn't completely refined either. A man named Bill Hegmare worked on this team in Quantico and had a very established career, including getting confessions from serial killers such as Ted Bundy. Bill Hegmaier was one of the best profiles the FBI had and he was assigned to write the profile for this case and I love a good FBI profile so let's take a look at what characteristics they thought the poisoner has. These guys are good and sometimes they can even predict what color make and model a vehicle a criminal has just by looking at their crime. It This, oh man... It always interests me to hear these profiles. So Bill stated that although poisoning is typically a feminine crime, this was not a woman who committed this. He believed it was a white male, mid-30s, educated, smart, did not like head-on confrontation, and is passive. He is organized, watches violent movies, fantasizes about murdering, but he's a coward. The poisoner showed incredible patience by selecting an 8-pack of coke instead of a large bottle, meaning they took their time carefully removing the caps and putting them back on. Also, tracking down thallium would have taken patience, and it was carefully selected instead instead of choosing a more readily available poison. But the poisoner knew thallium would kill them slowly. There was no cure. And by the time they all started dying, the evidence would be long gone. But that is where the poisoner was wrong as the Coca-Cola and the bottles still remained in the home. They did not get drank and then thrown into the garbage and then taken away by the garbage truck, which I'm sure is what the poisoner would have wanted. That didn't happen. The family did not consume the Coca-Cola as quickly as the poisoner would have predicted. The poisoner also knew the family's schedule and knew when they would be home and when they wouldn't be. He also knew that Coca-Cola would be brought into the home and consumed without question. He had been watching them, getting to know them, and taking his time. Bill also says that they should look for past threats because poisoners leave a trail of threats. Bill, he didn't even know it when he said it. He didn't even know anything about that note the family had received four months before the poisoning. He had no idea. And he predicted it. They're like fortune tellers. But like, you don't want to hear their fortune. But you do because it will bring justice. Justice. Wait, there's something there justice tellers (laughs) they're not fortune tellers they're justice tellers so had the poisoner been planning this for four months find who sent the note find who sent the poison bill asked them to see who can see the car's family home or where it can be watched from Can people see the Carr's family home from their home? Can it be seen from the road? Could people be in the orange grove watching the home? Who can see it and from where? Police had a few suspects in mind and had been questioning them, such as the Carr's neighbor, Diana Carr, which this gets kind of confusing. Even though Peggy and Diana share a last name, they are not related in any way. Diana Carr lives next door with her husband, George Treppel. They all became neighbors in 1982 when George and Diana moved into the house beside Pie's when Pie was still in his first marriage to his first wife. These were the neighbors who had complained about noise, and Peggy and Diana had even gotten into a little spat on the front lawn over the teenage boys, Dwayne and Travis, playing their radio too loud when they were washing their trucks. It got a bit heated and the two were yelling at each other just days before the mysterious poisoned Coca-Cola showed up at the Carr family's home. And although detectives thought a small spat between neighbors over noise wasn't a reason to suspect someone of poisoning, they had to check it out. After all... Diana Carr did live next door. She would have a full advantage point uh, watching the family. She would, she would know things about them. Diana had started the fight by yelling she was going to call police and ended the yelling match with Peggy by walking away saying, quote, "'You aren't going to get away with it,' unquote." And a whole lot of other words in between it sounded like a very heated battle they never had any luck tracking down george diana's husband as he always seemed to be out working or away he didn't seem to be home a lot but they did manage to find diana at her work now let's talk let's talk a little bit about diana so diana an orthopedic surgeon and also has a master's degree in chemistry, was questioned in her office by Detective Mincy, and she did not hesitate to tell him about the fight her and Peggy had. She didn't, she didn't seem to hide any of this. When asked if they have thallium in her medical practice, she said no, she doesn't need it for her line of work, although she had read about it once in a murder mystery novel. Detective Mincy wasn't all that interested in Diana as a suspect, but he had to cross her off the list. Honestly, she seems like the perfect suspect to me, but Diana, she didn't fit the FBI profile. Diana faced her problems head on. She wasn't passive at all. She does know chemistry though, and she is a doctor. So let's just put that on the back burner for now. Other suspects on the list were Carolyn, Pie's sister. Carolyn heard rumors that she was a suspect because people were talking about it around town. Sissy was suspecting Pie and possibly Carolyn. People were suspecting people, okay? And Carolyn's name kept coming up. And Carolyn heard about this and she was devastated by this news. In fact, she went to the police station looking for Detective Mincy crying she was breaking down she was crying she was distraught that people thought she had anything to do with poisoning Peggy and the boys and when Detective Mincy talked to her she seemed incredibly sincere in her interview and after that conversation whatever happened there Detective Mincy he wasn't too interested in her as a suspect either I mean what would her motive be why would she poison her own family But again, she's got a medical background, but her motive seems very weak, as in there is none. Pi was on the list as well, obviously. But after the thallium was found in his system, he wasn't looked at any longer. That left one more person on their list, the only family member that had zero thallium in her system. Tammy, Pi's daughter. Police questioned Tammy and discovered... She didn't drink Coca Cola. She was on a diet. She only drank. Diet Cola, therefore, had never consumed the poison. And after questioning, they ruled her out as a suspect as well. Uh, they thought, she doesn't have access to thallium. This is a very hard thing to get. She doesn't have the means to pry open these caps, get calculated dosages, mix it with another chemical that won't cause a reaction. Put the, They just didn't think anyone in the family had the means to carry out this elaborate poisoning. Basically, at this point, police believed the poison Coca-Cola bottles were specifically for the Carr family, which most of the family consumed the night of the fried chicken dinner. Peggy must have drank some even before that dinner, which is why she was showing signs sooner than everyone else. The reason why Pi had thallium in his system was because he was drinking bourbon and only mixed small amounts of Coca-Cola with his bourbon. So he had enough in his system to have abnormal levels of thallium, but not enough to make him sick or show symptoms. The rest of the family, except for Tammy, drank the Coca-Cola, but Peggy had the most, which is why she was the sickest. Dwayne and Travis drank the second most. Sissy and her daughter had only a little bit, And again, Tammy had none because she was drinking diet cola. But who hates the family that much to try and kill them all, including the two-year-old little girl who lived there? This is where I'm going to end part one. I have a lot to cover in part two. Like, uh, we're going to talk about if Peggy recovers, or if she ever comes out of her coma, what happens to Dwayne and Travis? Do they survive? And who do police suspect of the poisoning? This should only be a two-parter, so hopefully I can get the rest of this case covered in the next episode, uh, for this case, I did buy and read the book written on it by Jeffrey Good and Susan Goreck, called *Poison Mind*. And in the next episode, we are going to hear a lot of Susan Goreck. She plays a huge role in catching the person responsible, and we're going to talk about the lengths she goes to to get them. It is wild. Please remember to follow and rate Hell No on Spotify or whatever platform you are listening on. And I'm going to leave you on that cliffhanger. Uh, Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Don't Google this case. Wait for episode two. Thank you. Bye.